As we heard in our Advent readings this morning, Abraham and Zechariah both had similar struggles regarding faith in God's promise for a son. Both of them struggled with that. They struggled with the idea that either of their wives would be able to conceive and bear children, not to mention the fact that at their age, that meant they'd have to raise sons. <laughs> they already had enough gray hairs as it was. So they, they struggled with that faith. It didn't come easy to them. And as we talk about faith in the newborn king, I can't help but go back in my mind to the sermon series we just wrapped up in James, which was subtitled, Faith That Works. As we looked at James's letter, we focused for several months on how true faith always leads to action, that what I believe must influence how I behave, that our faith has to have hands and feet. Well, our faith also has to have a mind and a heart as well. And that's really the focus of today's passage in Hebrews chapter 11. If you'll turn there, Hebrews 11, we call it the Hall of Faith chapter. And, and yeah, this chapter does focus on the things these men and women did, and, and we'll look at some of that. But really the main focus is on why did they do what they did. Their motivation, their priority, the non-negotiable of how they lived their life was faith that God would make good on His promises. Faith that God keeps His Word. And so I want us to focus on this chapter this morning as we think about having faith in the newborn king. And really we're kind of looking at the other side of the faith coin that James looked at. And the first thing we see in Hebrews 11 in the first three verses is the essence of faith. And today is one of those days where I can't see without my glasses. So I'm going to have to put these on today. It comes and it goes, and Dr. Bob said, enjoy it while you, while you can, because eventually it's just going to go. It's not going to come anymore. So, Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, for by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Now, we've all heard the PC descriptions of Christians particularly as being people of faith, right? You've heard that expression. You know, we're a people of faith. You're a person of faith. Well, that always struck me as kind of odd because really everyone's a person of faith, right? And we all live our lives with a belief, with a faith, a trust in things we cannot see. I can't see the Wi-Fi signals going around in this room. I can't see the cellular signals, these things that keep us so connected that almost seem to run our world. You can't see the Internet, but we trust that these things are there. Every night we go to bed, we go to sleep in faith that we're going to wake up the next morning, right? There, there, there's faith and trust in everything that we do. And so the first thing we see here in Hebrews 11.1 1 is that faith is foundational to our lives. It's foundational. Some translations say faith is being sure of or faith is the confidence in or <clears throat> faith is the substance of. It's different ways of getting at the same Greek word, hypostasis, which really means the basic reality, the essence of existence, uh, the foundation that undergirds everything. That's what that word means. It's the foundation of faith. That, that all of our hopes are built. And the Old Testament heroes listed here in Hebrews 11, 
They all lived with this kind of foundational trust in this future that God promised them. They, they lived their lives based on this. And God rewarded them for living by that kind of faith, for letting that hope in His promise drive everything that they did. And as Christians, we trust in the future God has promised us, both a future of abundant life, but also a future of eternal life. And we live by that faith here as aliens and pilgrims in this world, traveling through this world, understanding that our home, our eternal destiny, is a far better place. So faith is foundational. Secondly, faith is evidence of what we do not see. For example, and it uses this example in verse 3, no human being has seen, was witness to the creation of the world. Are any of you old enough to have been here when God created the world? Some of you may feel like it, but no, none of us were here to witness that. God has revealed His creative work through creation itself and through His written Word, but we all believe something about how the world was made and, and where we came from. Even atheists who believe in this, this naturalist evolutionary uh, creation, even atheists are, are doing that based on faith. That's not science. That's faith. Nobody observed it. Nobody was there to witness to the creation of the world except God Himself. So whether, no matter how you believe how creation came about, it's all a matter of faith. And the question is, where do we place our faith? On what grounds do we believe the things that we believe in? And that's the story of the Bible. It's about people who build their lives on the hope of God's promises, who trust in truths they cannot see and who worship the one true and living God. And the Bible is filled with the faith stories of people who, like Abraham, like Zechariah, struggled at times to believe what God said, to trust in His promises and to act on that trust. I know we often think of faith as something that we have, that we possess in greater or lesser measures, when in reality faith is more of a process of trusting, of, of, of small, daily, step-by-step -step ways that we act on that trust in God. It's, it's not so much an object that you possess. You know, think about it this way. Faith isn't like some kind of like a protein powder that you can mix up that you drink to become spiritually stronger. And if you just put more doses of that protein powder in it, the stronger that you get. That's not how it works. You know, if I just have enough faith, I'll be strong enough to move mountains. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. All you need is faith the size of a mustard seed to move mountains. It's not about how much of that faith possessed. Think of faith instead as those daily exercises that you have to do to build those muscles, to build up that stamina to run the race in front of us. Faith is, again, it's something that you do. It's something that you act. Faith moves. It does. And so as we look at these faith stories in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, I want us to look at the exercises that we need to undertake to grow our faith. So we've talked about the essence of faith. Now let's look at the exercise of faith. And the first exercise of faith is that we need to worship truthfully. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better, a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Now, here's a question that Genesis never even asks, much less answers. Why did God accept Abel's gift and reject Cain's gift? You ever wondered that? 
Why did God accept Abel's and not Cain's? Well, Hebrews 11 gives us the answer. Abel's offering exercised faith. It showed trust in God, whereas Cain's offering revealed a heart that distrusted God. By holding back, Cain was showing a lack of trust in God, really repeating the very lie that his parents had believed from the serpent, that God was not trustworthy. Did God really say? Does God really love you? Is God really good? But Abel gave us an act of lavish worship, worship in spirit and in truth, which is the kind of worship that God desires. In fact, Jesus Himself said, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So the story of Cain and Abel reminds us that religiousness does not equal righteousness. And if we are to truly worship the Lord, it must come from a relationship built in faith and trust. That kind of faith-filled worship cannot be silenced even by death. And, and Abel is the example of that because he still speaks to us today. So we worship God truthfully. That's one way we exercise our faith. Secondly, we walk with God earnestly. We walk with God earnestly, daily. Look at verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So yeah, worship, we would all agree, is an essential part of our walk with God, but so are those smaller daily disciplines of Bible reading and prayer, of serving the Lord and loving and forgiving other people and sharing the gospel and making disciples. It's not just a one time a week something we do here. It's a daily, earnest walk with God. And Enoch had that kind of walk with the Lord. Now, if you remember, Enoch lived in the days before Noah. He, he was living at the tipping point of wickedness in our world. Yet in that age of corruption, Enoch stood out enough as a righteous man that he didn't taste death. Think about that. He showed his faith in God in a daily, earnest, consistent walk with a God he couldn't see. It was a walk by faith. And his reward was an immediate change of address. <laughs> he didn't have to go through death. He didn't have to taste that. Now, I, I read this story and I immediately stop and I say, now just wait a minute, that seems hardly fair to Abel. We just read about Abel and his faith. It resulted in a violent death. Yet Enoch's resulted in no death at all. And that's the first reminder to us that the walk of faith doesn't necessarily lead to the same outcome in this life for everyone. It's a reminder that the story of faith is God's story. It's about His redemptive work in the world. It's not about us. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that it's not about me. It's about Him. And so the author here tells us that Enoch's faith pleased God, and he uses that to make an illustration that it's impossible to please God without faith. 
Enoch pleased God with faith. No one can please God apart from faith. And that tells us something about the nature of faith that pleases God. Right there in verse 6, two things. First, if anyone walks with God, they do so from a deep conviction that God exists. I worship the Lord. I spend time with God. I serve God. I give. I, I do these things because I believe that God is. And not just any God, but the biblical God. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But secondly, we also must believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Those two convictions are the foundation, the essence, the reality of our faith. So we worship God truthfully. We walk with God earnestly. Thirdly, we work for God wholeheartedly. We work wholeheartedly. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Warren Wiersbe points out in his commentary that Noah's faith involved the whole person. His mind was warned of God, his heart was moved with fear, and his will acted on what God told him. He's an example for us in serving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God isn't interested in half-hearted efforts to worship Him, serve Him, or make disciples for Him. He wants us to work wholeheartedly. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells a story uh, of some, or or Luke tells a story of some would-be disciples who wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus responded by telling them to count the cost that following Him might mean they have nowhere to lay their head. It might mean leaving behind family and friends. And Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's all or nothing when it comes to serving the Lord. We have to work for God wholeheartedly as an exercise of our faith. And we also have to wait and obey expectantly. We have to wait and obey expectantly. Now, we see this in the next uh, 11 or so verses here uh, about Abraham. We're coming back to Abraham and his family and their story of how they had to patiently and expectantly wait and obey a God who doesn't always give us the details. Now, let's be honest. We like to have all the details, don't we? We want to read all the fine print before we sign the dotted line. That's not how following Jesus works. We don't get all the details. God asks us to trust Him. He asks us to go, to give, to tell, to do, and He doesn't always give us the whys and the wheres and the whens and the what fors. We're not privy to all of that. We have questions because we only see and know in part. And the same was true for Abraham. And that's where trust and obey, as the song says, trust and obey for there's no other way. That's where that comes in. It's precisely because Abraham had more questions than answers that it took faith. Look, if God spelled it all out for us and told us everything that was going to happen, would it take faith to serve and obey Him? No, it takes faith because we don't have all of our questions answered. And what are some of those questions? Well, the first is, where is God leading? Look at verses 8 and 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents 
as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham lived a nomadic life. He was ready to pack up his tents and go whenever God said, it's time to go. And in his first letter, Peter tells us that we're not all that different. That we also are, are foreigners and exiles in this world, that this world is not our home. We should live as nomads, never getting too comfortable with things in this world, always ready to get up and go wherever God leads, to speak to whoever God sends us, to serve whoever God puts in our path. As one of my favorite hymns says, wherever He leads, I'll go. Wherever He leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever He leads, I'll go. Where is God leading is a question that we have to trust in faith. So is, how will God work? Look at verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grain of sand along the seashore. You know, I think miraculous births must be one of God's favorite miracles. You know, it happens so often in the Bible, these miraculous births. And Abraham and Sarah, just as Zachariah and Elizabeth, and even just as the Virgin Mary, they all struggled a little bit with this because there was one very good, very logical question. How? How will God work? How will God do this? That's a legit question. Maybe you've wondered about how God is going to answer a prayer in your life how God is going to make good on a promise to you. Because life's circumstances can certainly get in the way and cloud our vision, can't they? They can make us wonder these questions. Remember, faith is the certainty of things unseen. And sometimes we can't see because the logistics get in the way. Like Peter, we take our eyes off Jesus and we focus too much on the wind and the waves. We start to get caught up in the weeds of how exactly is God going to do this? How is He going to help me face these bills that are piling up? How is He going to help me through this medical diagnosis? How is He going to help me deal with this rebellious teenager? How is He going to help me meet this looming deadline? How? But as the miraculous births in Luke 1 illustrate, there's a difference in wondering, how can I be sure of God's promise and how will the Lord accomplish this? Those are two different questions. When Gabriel told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would conceive and have a son in their old age, Zechariah doubted how this could happen. And as a result, he was deaf and mute for nine months. But when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her that though she was a virgin, she would bear the Son of God, she simply wondered how God would accomplish it. See, one comes from a place of doubt. The other question comes from a heart of faith, a heart that trusts in God. Another question that we might struggle with is when. When will God act? Let's look at verses 13 through 16. All these died in faith, meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never really saw the complete fulfillment of God's promise to them, of, of having this numerous descendants like the stars, of possessing this land. They only saw and welcomed them from a distance. That's why they had to live by faith to the very end of their lives. They, they, they were men and women who lived in tents, but they always had their eyes set on a city whose builder and architect was God. Sometimes we get too impatient in our prayers and we want God to act now. We want our answers to our prayers today and, and we forget that our lives are only a vapor, right? That our lives are just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. Peter encourages us in his second letter to not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Now, talk about slowness. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. The nation of Israel had to wait 400 years in slavery in Egypt and then an extra bonus 40 years tacked on top of that, the result of unbelief, before they inherited the promised land and centuries passed as God's people longed for their Messiah to come. And now here we are as Christians waiting every day for the Lord to come again praying, even so come Lord Jesus, and all the while working to share the gospel to make sure as many people get to go with us to heaven when He returns. God always fulfills His promise to His believing people. Sometimes, immediately, but always, ultimately, God fulfills His promises. Faith gives us the patience to wait for God to work with great expectation. When will God work? And another question, maybe the one that we struggle with the most, is why? Why is God doing this? Look at verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. You know, the tests of faith become more difficult the longer we walk with God, the closer we walk with God, and yet the rewards, I think, become even more wonderful. And this test right here for Abraham lay in this conflict between trusting God's promise and obeying God's command. God's covenant promise was bound up in Isaac. So it was a struggle for Abraham when God then commanded him to kill this son of the promise. The problem is we force ourselves into an unnecessary choice, choice, a false dichotomy. Do I believe God's promise or do I obey God's command as if somehow those are mutually exclusive of each other? Now this is the very same falsehood that humanity has wrestled with since the Garden of Eden. Again, Satan tempting us to doubt the goodness of God. Is God really good? Abraham could easily have questioned God's command to sacrifice Isaac, but instead he rejected this false dichotomy and he chose to believe that God's promise could not fail, therefore he obeyed God's command. I want you to understand this. Obeying God's command seemed to negate God's promise. But for Abraham, it was belief in that promise that enabled him to obey God's command. 
And as he raised that knife to slay Isaac, God stopped him and provided a ram to sacrifice in place of his son. But Abraham believed enough, even though he had no reason to have any concept of resurrection, he somehow believed anew that God would raise up Isaac if he were to kill him. He did not doubt that obeying God's command would, would, would still see the fulfillment of God's promise. Listen, we don't always understand why God commands us to do the things He commands us to do or tells us not to do the things He tells us not to do. We don't always understand why God even allows certain things to happen in our lives. But we can trust that no matter what, God is good and He will come through on His promises. That as we obey God, we exercise our faith. As we wait on God, we exercise our faith that He is good, He is just, He is loving, He is trustworthy, and He always does what He says He's going to do. But then there's something we do know. Faith is knowing beyond the unanswered questions that God has a plan for our future. He has a plan. Look at verses 20 through 23. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. So here we see four generations of people putting their faith and trust in God. Were they, were they perfect? <laughs> Far from it. Read Genesis. They were far from perfect. They often failed miserably, but they were devoted to God. They trusted in His Word. And, and it's even more remarkable when you consider they didn't have a Bible to turn to. They didn't have churches to go to. They didn't have a pastor to go to. The odds were stacked against them, yet they persisted in their faith. They acted on the basis of a future that they could not see. And God rewarded them for it. And eventually the people of Israel did inherit this land of promise. We wait and obey expectantly despite our questions, trusting that God has a future for us. But also we wage war spiritually. We move from the story of Abraham to the story of Moses. And, and as we've seen already in, in, the, in these heroes of the faith, the life of faith is a life of struggle. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. By faith, we wage a spiritual war against our enemy, the devil. He is going to fire darts of doubt and temptation your way every day. He doesn't relent. He doesn't give up. And so we must equip ourselves with the armor of God, with faith and righteousness and prayer, with salvation and the gospel and the Word of God. And in January, I'm going to be doing a sermon series through the armor of God. We're going to look more at this idea of spiritual warfare. But for today, I just want to point out that the real fight of spiritual warfare isn't with anything out here. It's in here. It's the inner struggle of discipleship. That's where the real spiritual battle takes place. Jesus talks about this in Luke 9.23. He tells us, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow Jesus, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow Him. So look, look here at how Moses' life is really one of the greatest examples of spiritual warfare in the Old Testament, and it follows this outline of discipleship. We see uh, in verses 23 and 24 
Moses' life exemplifies the call to deny ourselves. Look what it says. It says, By faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses refused the rights and the privileges of being a son of Pharaoh. He set that aside. He denied himself for the cause of God's kingdom. But his life also exemplifies what it means to take up our crosses. Let's look on. Verse 25. And he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. So Moses chose to identify with the Hebrew slaves. He regarded this disgrace, this downgrade, as a greater value than all the treasures and pleasures of Egypt because he knew where his true reward lied. Moses shows us what it means to take up that cross of suffering, of putting others before ourselves, of sacrificing ourselves for the people of God. And then third, his life exemplifies what it means to follow Jesus. He goes on to say, By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who seeks him who is invisible. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, and so now we move on even beyond Moses to, to Joshua. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Vance Havner said, Moses chose the imperishable, saw the invisible, and did the impossible. And in these verses, <clears throat> we see where his faith took him, where it took the people of Israel. Faith brings us out of slavery, brings us through trials, and brings us into God's kingdom. That's what happens when we follow Jesus, when we take up our cross, when we deny ourselves. Listen, if we trust ourselves or other people, we get what we and other people can do. When we trust God, we get what God can do. Amen? Moses has proved that true faith means obeying God despite the circumstances, despite the consequences. We deny ourselves, we take up our crosses, and we follow Jesus daily. Now, at this point, I echo what the writer of Proverbs says in verse 32. What more can I say? Time is too short. <laughs> so, uh, very quickly, I want us to round this out by looking at how we must write our faith story personally. This is where we come in. From here on in, in Hebrews 11, we're moving into, into the age of the church, including ourselves. And I want to point out just a few things about what our faith story must be characterized. In verse 33, we, say, we see it as kingdom-driven. He, he talks about Gideon, Barak, Samson, these people. He says, "...who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises." Now, in conquering kingdoms, we're empowered like Gideon over our enemy, to conquer our enemy, not in, God's, not in our power, but in God's power. In administering justice, we practice a righteousness that's willing to sacrifice and serve others who are in need. In gaining 
What is promised means we seize God's Word and we live by it. We must be like Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel. We seek God's kingdom come here and now by turning our backs on and overthrowing the kingdoms of this world. And we do that through prayer and through working for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means we replace the wicked ways of the world with the redeeming, restoring justice of God. And we have to ask ourselves, is my life kingdom-centered or is it worldly-centered? What's the center of my life? Am I seeking the kingdom of God? Am I working for His will to be done on earth? Or am I seeking myself and working according to the ways of the world? Our story, our faith story must be kingdom-centered. Secondly, it must be, I'm sorry, it must be kingdom-driven. Secondly, it must be gospel-centered. Look there at the end of verse 33. He says, Shut the mouths of lions, quench the raging of fire, escape the edge of the sword. These are three examples of miraculous rescues from certain death. The gospel is about Jesus coming to rescue us from sin, from death, from hell. Our lives should be testimonies of the God who rescues, the God who saves. Our stories must be gospel-centered. And the rest of of verse 34 tells us that our stories must also be spirit-empowered. Let's continue on. He says, "...gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight." It is only by the Spirit of God that our weaknesses can become strengths, that we have the power to win the battles that we face. Our faith stories are kingdom-driven, they're gospel-centered, they're spirit-empowered, and finally, they're resurrection-focused. Look at the rest of this chapter. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sought in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. I love this, this phrase. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Not every saint is rescued from the mouth of lions and from the flames, are they? Not every saint is rescued. Many of God's servants had to hide in the desert or in mountain caves. They were banished from society. They had to live like animals and many of them died very painful and gruesome deaths. Faith in God does not guarantee comfort in this world. But it does promise a plentiful reward in the world that really matters. When we come into God's presence in heaven, that is where our reward is. There's a resurrection coming. There's a future day when Christ returns and He makes all things whole and good and right. He heals the brokenness of this world. But in this life, God never promises us that following Jesus is going to be easy. In fact, Jesus said that just as the world hated and persecuted Him, if we love Him and follow Him, we can expect the world to hate and persecute us too. Our faith story is one of resurrection. Acknowledging that this life, this world is not all there is. And thank God, right? Because if you looked around, this world is broken. 
It's diseased. It's dying. But we look forward to the day when Christ Jesus returns. And again, He brings the dead to life. He makes the broken whole. He heals what is sick. And He makes all things new. That's what we look forward to. Our faith looks through the valley of shadows to the Father's house where goodness and mercy will pursue us forever and forever. Listen, this morning you can know that today in your life. That brokenness that you have in your life, God can make whole. That spiritual sickness that you're suffering from called sin, He can heal that. But you have to give your life to Him. You have to turn in faith and trust to Him. Again, if you put your trust in what you can do, you're going to get the results of what you can do. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's not very comforting. If you put your trust in other people, you'll get what other people can do. A lot of people are putting their trust in the fact that they're going to ride their parents' coat strings into heaven. They put their trust in the fact that they grew up in church, that they think they're good people, that they think they do good stuff. They put their trust in their religiousness. I'm here to tell you today, none of these people in Hebrews 11 were approved by those things. It says they were approved by their faith. Are you putting your trust in yourself and what you can do and what someone else can do? Or have you put your trust in what Jesus Christ has already done for you on the cross? That is the only way into the kingdom of God. That is the only way that you join the ranks of these faithful heroes. If you've never turned from your sin and put your trust in Christ for your salvation, I beg of you to come today and to know that you belong to Jesus, that you've got this relationship with God built in faith and trust. That's what it means to have faith in the newborn king. Now, for those of us that are Christians, for those of us that have that relationship with God, how is your walk with Him every day? Are you walking with Him earnestly? Are you worshiping Him truthfully? Maybe you're wrestling with some unanswered questions and you need to come and ask God to help you strengthen the faith that you need to wait and obey with expectation. Maybe you're fighting some spiritual warfare in your life. Maybe there's some doubt, some sin, some guilt, some grief that you're struggling with today and you need Him to help you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow Him. Is your life kingdom-driven, gospel-centered, resurrection-focused, spirit-empowered, this altar is open for you today. None of us are perfect. We're all in this process, this journey of faith. Sometimes we're a little more like Abraham, sometimes a little bit more like Zechariah. Sometimes we need to be mute for nine months. Amen? (laughs) Whatever God is laying on your heart today, I just ask you to respond, to step out, to trust and obey. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for these amazing stories of faith, Lord, that show us that faith isn't easy. And that even the people we look back at and we we admire and marvel at their faith, we see them struggle. We see that the, the faith sometimes has to overcome our feelings. We put our trust in the truth, not in how we feel today. And we also see that faith doesn't mean that everything works out with a nice bow tied around it at the end that we look through this life, through the dark valley of shadows, to the eternity that awaits us, to the reward that is ours in heaven. So, Father, whether you 
answer our prayer with a yes in the now or it's a wait or it's a no or it's a, it's a coming down the, the path. Father, help us to trust in You. Help us to be obedient. Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would come today and put their faith and trust in what He has done on Calvary's cross. In Jesus' name we pray.